Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Blue Murder Club. My name's Carrie and I'm your host and I'm accompanied as ever and always by my very good friend and co-host. Lauren, hello, how are you? Hey babe. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing good baby, how are you? <laughs> I'm brilliant, thanks. I'm always buzzing once the microphone goes on and we start yeah. to do our thing. Yeah, get going for it, woo woo. Yeah, yeah, it's cool isn't it? It we, is. We're on series five, episode four today aren't mm-hmm. we, bringing you mm-hmm. around the world? Around the world. <laughs> do you remember that old E17 song? Been around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, yeah, yeah. I thought you was gonna go for the other one. Deep, deep down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know. Yeah, we could do because we're going deep, deep down into Africa today, aren't we, babe? We are, my love. Yeah. So today's episode. It, we've split into two, haven't we? I'm yeah. covering um, the Butcher of Uganda, Idi Amin, and you're covering... The Rwandan Genocide, but mainly a Felician Kabar. Mm, yeah, so we've got two African dictators, I suppose, who yeah, well, created yeah. havoc. Yeah. So, yeah. Tough ones. Like, honestly, the footage, I, I don't know about you, but it done me. It's tough. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, some of the mm. reports, isn't it? But... Um, yeah. Have you had a good week anyway? Before I have, we get my too, lovely, yes. Before we get too bogged down. <laughs> this may be a bit of a um, serious episode. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I couldn't really see that much humour in what no. I was researching. There's no humour. There's none. No, it's very serious mm-hmm. uh, content. So let's have a little cheery chat yeah. before we get yeah. all bogged down in all of the doom and gloom, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> Why not? So what have you been up to? What have I been up to? <gasps> you had exciting news. Ah! Yeah, I can't say it. Yeah, I know. Ah, yeah, but no. yeah, very good sort of news. Yeah, good news. So, yes, I've been pumped up and at the old period centre. Yeah. We've um, had massive donations, Kaz, but all week I've walked around in a wedding dress because we've been given five <laughs> wedding dresses. Oh, my Proper God. Proper real ones. Oh, I'd I'll love pop to work it up in your if shop. You remember. Yeah. yeah. It's like that episode of Friends. Well, I have got one for all of us. That's what I was, I've got five <laughs> and I thought. I've got one for all of us, so if we ever needed a wedding dress, mm. they're all um, ex-display, so yeah. they ain't bad, well, a bit make-up-y, but yeah. who cares? Do you know what? I don't have a wedding dress, because <gasps> I borrowed my wedding dress off Vicky, off my sister, so... Do you want a wedding dress? I really want one. Come to it, we'll Some try one. like during lockdown, you see people trying on their wedding dresses mm-hmm. just because they had nothing else to do, and yeah. I was like, oh. Dress. I've got my old wedding dress, but it's dog shit, so we can just have new beautiful ones. Oh, I, I bet it's lovely. Do you want to do a take on camera? I'll show you a picture of it. We yeah. can do a take on camera. Well, keep talking while I yeah. get it up. Yeah, so I'd love, <laughs> I would absolutely love to have a wedding dress. I know, I know. So, I don't... Let's so see. that's the one yeah. I chose. It's but. very nice. That's for, for our listeners. It's a beautiful lacy number. Pearls on the back. 
beautiful. Isn't it lovely? Yeah, it's really nice actually. Yeah. Oh, I'd feel like I'd feel like nuts if I got to wear that work all day. That's what I did <laughs> all day. Today <laughs> at my work, Friday's a dress down Friday. Yeah. Can you imagine if I rocked up in a fucking wedding dress? You know, I've got to do it, you know. You've got to. Oh. You've just got to. What like, would they do? The selection, like, don't, they're very heavy. I'm not mm. going to lie. I didn't expect it to be that heavy. It don't look like you could comfortably sit all day because it quite looks there boned. There was no sitting, no. There was no I was just <laughs> swanning. Swanning. Yeah. Swanning about. about the place. My boss oh, went, um, I love it. Lauren, do, do you mind uh, taking it off for a bit? I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I can't hear you. Yeah. So I'm too busy swanning yeah. around the shop. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Nah, yeah. do it tomorrow. Yeah, leave it. It's mine now. See yeah. ya. Bye. That's it. Ta-da. Bye, Felicia. Yeah, exactly. So, because we had um, we had bank holiday weekend, I went camping over a place. Nice. It's like in North Essex. It's called Brightling Sea. It's a really nice part of the world, actually. It's really, uh, it's quite posh, actually. Nice. It's got a yacht club. Ooh. Or a little, little yacht club. It's really nice, nice there, actually. We had nice weather. It was beautiful. So, yeah, we had a nice relaxing time. Over you the bank holiday. Into the pool, did you? Though, didn't you? Yeah, there was an outdoor swimming pool, unheated. It was well cold. Nope. No, I didn't like it. Nope. I got in up to sort of like my rib cage, and suddenly, you know, when you're so cold, you have to pee. Like, I was like, <gasps> oh my God, I need to wee. So I went went out. I didn't be in, in there. Went to the toilet when I came. So then I had to get back in again. You'd have said, Plus, Lauren got all blue clouds around her <laughs> yeah. because I would have got out. <laughs> be like, oh, it's nice and warm here. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, but, yeah, it was nice. Really nice little break. Thank oh, you. Oh, good. But, yeah, other than that, back to work, back to normal. So, back yeah. to it. Yeah, I didn't get to wear a wedding dress, so you beat me. Sorry. And there we have it. <laughs> no, I've got you one. You can wear it next week. It's fine. Crime oh, con. Thanks. She'll turn up in um, wedding dresses. Yeah, crime con's coming up. Yeah, can you imagine if I just turn up to crime? We ain't got nothing to wear, have we? Well, we keep saying we want a nice dress. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. That's all we keep saying. <laughs> Things have got so desperate, Kaz. I've ordered, reordered the dress I wore last year on eBay. There's not enough events where you can wear a wedding dress. No, I agree. Let's make them. Yeah, let's just fucking record podcasts in wedding dresses. Listen, shall we? can we have some comments and some that, and we'll make a wedding day, yeah, <laughs> wedding day. I don't know, wedding dress. <gasps> we can do a pub crawl in wedding dresses. Done. Yeah, let's do that. Right, Everyone think we're getting married, but never mind. Yeah. Yeah, right, we'll do it. Right. Okay, okay, so that's brought up the mood. So we're ready to bring it back down yeah. with um, <clears throat> with this week's subject matter. So do you, do you want to go first, babe? Yes, yeah, sure. So, oh, I'm so sorry, guys. Let's go. <clears throat> ready? So I'm talking about the Rwanda genocide and a guy called Felician Kuba who financed it. Hmm. So in 1990, there's a civil war in Rwanda and eventually led to the Rwandan genocide. It occurred between the 7th of April and the 15th of July 1994. During the Rwandan civil war, an estimated 800,000 Rwandans were killed in the space of 100 days. Bloody hell. It's a lot. Mm. Um, So most of the dead were... culture called Tutsis mm. and most of them that were the, uh, who performed the violence were Hutus mm. so even for a country with such turbulent history as Rwanda has the scale and speed of the slaughter left its people reeling so I'm going to jump back now to the civil war to understand where we got to and mm. why we got to this point so Tutsis are a Bantu-speaking ethnic group in the second largest of three main ethnic groups in Rwanda, one of them being the Tutsis. 
So the other one, sorry, one of the other three is the Tutsis. Mm. The war didn't start over a language or religion, which I was so shocked about because I kept saying to you, like, civil wars, you always think it's... Religion. Religion, yes. Mm. But it was obviously to do with class and the uprising, I think. So the Tutsis were seen to have a greater wealth and social social status. I'm so sorry. And the Humatos were seen as a lower class. These class differences started during the 19th century and it was made bigger by colonisation. The Tutsis are thought to have originally come from Ethiopia and arrived after the Humatos came back from the Chad. The Tutsis had a monarchy dating back to the 15th century, but it was overthrown during the 1960s. So this is where the Humatos took power by force in Rwanda. In 1925, Belgians colonised the area. But rather than establishing a government from Brussels, they trusted the local Tutsis to take charge. But this led to the exploitation of the Humatus people. Starting in 1957, they started to rebel. And, you know, I'm thinking like a massive revolution, basically, Mm -hmm. of the treatment they were subjected to. Yeah. So they wrote manifestos. And they staged violent actions. And in 1962, Belgium left the area with two new nations were formed. Between 1961 and 1994, there were many violent clashes between the two groups. The Civil War started in 1990. So that's where we are. So for years and years, this friction, 40 years, yeah? Mm. Is that right? 30? 30 years. There we go, (laughs) 30 years. There's been this massive... Brewing and violent between the, these two kind of two cultures. Groups. Yeah. Mm. So this leads us on to the genocide. Oh, the footage honestly has done me. I'm getting mm. whirled up. Let's go. So the genocide was sparked by the death of a Rwandan president. His plane was shot down above Kigal Airport on the 6th of April 1994. So the Hutu president of Oh, my God, sorry. Brandy. He was also... So, the president... And... So, the president of Rwanda and the president of Bruti was also killed in the attack. Oh, I see. So, this sparked the chinily well-organised extermination of the Tutsis. Even though blame was for the plane attack was never been established, who shot it down? So, they don't know. But where they're at each other's throats already, they're just... Placing the blame on the other, you know? Yeah. So, sexual violence against the Tutsi woman was also widespread. The United Nations only conceded that acts of genocide had occurred two months after the killing began. So, hiding in the background of all this is the biggest player of them all. The Felicia, uh, his name's Felician Kabar. He's a major player in this genocide. He was born on the 1st of March 1933 in what is now known known as present-day Rwanda. Kabar amassed his wealth by owning a tea farms in the northern Rwanda area, among other business ventures. He's noted for his role in his primary financier of the Hutu extremist media outlets such as RTLM radio station and a magazine. 
and he advocated for the killing of the Tutsi minority. Cabal was named the Chairman Director General of the station. So that sounds like quite an important, mm. doesn't it? And it had duties such as presenting over RTLM and representing this station was a free station and it made money for, with advertisements. So that's how they kept going. But it was to reach, oh, I'll get onto it, but it was reach as many people as they can to spread this hate case. Mm. So the main plan of it was to reach thousands of people, which I'm so, I'm so sorry, <laughs> just said, and persuade them of their extremist views. On this station, he had his people say, so these are um, quotes, Kaz. I hope God will help us to exterminate them and to organise ourselves to exterminate the bad race. It was said one of the most powerful weapons of this genocide was this radio station because it got to so many people. Mm. It was free. It's in a very, very poverty-ridden area. And all they've got are radios, Kaz. So mm. this is all they're hearing day in and day out. It's how bad these are. Yeah. And what they can do, uh, yeah, it's just, it's atrocious. I suppose it's just stirring up, like, the antagonism that's yeah. already there. It because is. if you heard someone on the radio telling you to get your machete and go and kill your next-door neighbour, you wouldn't, would no. you? It's not like just listening to a radio station is going to make you become a homicidal maniac. Yeah. Like you say, this has been brewing for 30 years, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. So... <clears throat> So, uh, I'm so sorry, I've lost my place. So, um, he was the richest man in Rwanda at the time and he was treated like a celebrity. So, when he was driving past, everyone knew his car. They couldn't see him in the car because of the tinted windows, but they knew him. They would, like, wave him down because he was rich and he was just someone to look up to. Mm -hmm. So, he had a lot of influence over these people, Kaz. So, the increasing frantic hate speech on the radio gets the attention of the governing bodies who threatened to shut the station down. However... Because they're threatening this, what he does, Felician, is then go back and threaten to kill their families and them mm. if they don't back off. So they back off. Right. So they can see it's bad. They can see what's happening. But now they've been threatened and it's kind of like, I want to say, a lawless kind of community at the time. Mm. And I think they took them for it seriously and backed off and just let them carry on. Yeah. So from January 1993 to March 1994, a total of 500,000 machetes were imported to Rwanda. Mm. Statistically, one for every three adults mm. in the country. So um, Kabar has been named one of the main importers of these machetes. So we'd have them imported into his factories under his name. Yeah. They've got all the paperwork there. It all leads back to him. These were mil military. Also, oh, the military. So he started making people like military at checkpoints because it's a war-torn country. Mm. So at these checkpoints, he would like gonna call them guards. Let's say mm. guards. He um, had them posted everywhere. At first, he just gave them the machetes, gave them uniforms, and gave them money. Mm. and gave them a bit of power. Um, they all had to meet up in his private office, and we're not too sure, to be fair, Kaz, what was discussed, because people were saying, oh, no, he was going heavy. He's saying, this is what you have to do, and this is how you have to do it. Mm. And others don't want to say a word because they're scared of the guy, right? Yeah. So um, 
they were told exactly how to put all that what they've got into use. Um, there's footage that I watched, and there's a kid, he's about four or five, carrying a machete ready to. Mm. Yeah, it it's tough, you know, ready to use it. Let's just say that. So from these guards having these weapons, they start filtering them down. Yeah. To the public, so everyone's getting a machete. Mm. So, sorry, there's checkpoints where people had to show ID cards. So when you've turned up to these checkpoints, on your ID card would have if you're a Humato or a Tutsi. Yeah. So if you're a Humato, you were free to pass and go wherever you wanted, all over the country. But if you was a Tutsi, you was in trouble. Mm. The guards at the checkpoints were told to kill every single man, woman and child with a Tutsi ID card. The country was just torn about by hate by this point, um, and they were just streaming. You can see it in them; they're just like blood first. That's how I, what I'm thinking. They just mm. bit like the football hooligans we have over here. You know, mm. when they go to a football match and they want that bloodlust, they want the fight. Yeah, that's how they come across when watching it. They were, um, yeah, they were literally butchering anyone and everyone they came across who was Tutsi. They would strike the Achilles heel yeah. as if they tried to run mm. to stop them running any further and they would literally just hack them to death. There's burnt children, burnt houses. Just, it's just vile, the violence in this. And watching the um, footage, like you can just see the streets are covered, mm. absolutely covered in bodies. Yeah, everywhere, Everywhere this video pans, it's just disgusting. So, yeah, this goes on until, I think, 94. And then there's a guy called Perry Richard, um, Perspire, and he was an U.S. ambassador for the war crime. And he went out to Rwanda at this time, and he see these atrocities happening, because mm. he see it, and he couldn't, he just, yeah, he couldn't believe it. So he put Felician on the most wanted list with five million on his head. When he... Felician finds out about this. He escapes to Switzerland. He's been to Switzerland before. That's a key part of this. So on the 22nd of July. And he arrives to a refugee centre with his family in a minibus full of baggage and mm. luggage. Now, what refugee turns up to a refugee centre? They mm. don't, do they? No. So you can see his wealth, you can see his power. Why is this guy on the run if he's got all this money, you know? You know why? He's in Switzerland because so they can't extradite him. Mm. So there's a guy that actually talks about this and he says he came into the centre, he runs it, he's the manager, and he says, I thought it was very strange as refugees normally turn up with next to nothing, they need the clothes they're wearing and maybe, if lucky, a backpack on their back. Yeah. Which is exactly right. So he applies for asylum and he's fastly granted a visa because he's had one before. And two, because he's extremely rich. Mm. So he's lucky he's got this visa really quick and he's felt like we can hide out here for a bit till it calls them. He had a bank account in there and he had over a million in it. Yeah. But he emptied the account. Um, someone got wind that he was be be being deported 
So they report to the federal, oh, they report him to the Federal Office of Foreigners to append him and say, this guy, this is who he is, this is what he's done, he's got all these war crimes, like, facing. Mm. Like, can you come, like, and get him and, like, deport him? And Switzerland just thought, no, he's, he's going back to Africa. He's not our problem anymore. Oh, right. Yeah. So um, he's boarded a plane. Um, and he left Switzerland with all his money and his family. Back to Keisha, where he's found and filmed in one of the two biggest hotels. So, yeah, this city's not massive. Mm. <clears throat> and they've only got two really wealthy hotels. So this news reporter thinks, I know where to find him. I know he's got to be in one of these two hotels. There's nowhere else this guy can be. Where, where would he go? Keisha, did you say? Yeah, K-I-N-S-H-A-S-A. Oh, do you know where that is? Yeah, I'm coming up to it. Yeah, I N S H A S A A S A. Oh, got it. Kinshasa. Kinshasa. Formerly Leopoldville, capital, largest city of something or another. <laughs> so yeah. He's oh, Congo. Congo. So he's back in That's Africa. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he's gone back to Africa. So yeah, he's um. So but there's only two big holes. He knows he's there. Mm. So he gets a interview with him and this is like one of the first times they've got a camera on this guy yeah and he's sitting there cacaz, and he's smirky and he's a bit like he gets his daughter to translate for him like he doesn't play any games he's like no he's got this slight smirk to his face and he's sitting there and he's just saying um he's denial in all these acts i didn't do it, it wasn't me I, i'm just a businessman i have investments in guanda and I've got like businesses there, including the radio station, but I don't know what they're putting on there. Mm. Bullshit. What about the half a million machetes? That yeah, he exactly. Well? Yeah, and he's seen a smirking case. That's the worst thing. Mm. It's horrible. So now we go to May 1997. Seven people of the Rwandan regime are arrested, and Felician was one of these seven. Oh, hooray. Yeah, well, well. Oh, mm. maybe not her, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, on, I'm waiting He's on the, the most end. wanted list, though. Fucking you hell. You wait, you wait. It's worse. Yeah. So, however, the country back then was really corrupt, as you know. And he bought, he silenced his way out of prison. Oh, that old China. Yeah. <laughs> he starts an import-export business. Prick. Sorry. And he starts <laughs> living it up. Yeah. He's got this massive mansion. He's He's... Having a whale of a time. He's got off Scott free then. Yeah. So in June, so this is May 97, in June 97, Richard, the guy, Perry, sorry, Richard, ain't having none of this. You know, the US guy who's put him on the most wanted list. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, no, I'm not doing this, sorry. So um, he gets an informant that's working on the inside and he's trusted by Felician. And this guy's a local Kenyan journalist um, and he's built trust, so they've got him doing odd jobs. They've got him coming into the meeting rooms with him. And oh, I see. Yeah. Double agent. Working undercover. Yeah. Mm, clever. Nice. Someone gains information that there's a spy in the camp. Mm. And all four fingers point to this young boy, Kaz. Mm. And what they do, they torture him, kidnap, oh, sorry, kidnap him, torture him, and kill him. Yeah. So then Pierre's got nothing. His spy's gone. Mm. So then on the 14th of June, 
2008. Kenya's KTN Networks reports that Kabar has been arrested that day before and he was being held at, I'm so sorry about this pronunciation, Gigari Police Station in Nairobi. Later, the suspect was found in the local university lecturer. It wasn't Kabar. Oh, okay. It was a mistaken identity. Yep. Yeah. And he was released. Mm. Imagine that. Imagine that. Well, like you say, if he was a bit camera shy, perhaps yeah. there weren't that many up-to-date no. pictures of him and stuff. That's true. Possibly. Yeah. So it was early suspected that Kabar resided in Kenya and was was running a business and enjoying protection from either the Kenyan government or some influential fair figures within the country. So it was all kept tight, but within the country. Mm. He's not paid for anything. Well, he's paid his way out, but he's not actually mm. done any prison time for anything. Not yeah. that, what we've just talked about. He's bought his way out of it, I suppose. Yeah. So, so bear in mind, so we started at 94, right? Yeah. Where I got to was 2008, right? Mm. We're here now, and you're gonna go. You're gonna go mad because I I weren't happy about this. So listen to this date. So on May on May sixteenth, two thousand and twenty. Okay. Police arrests Kabar now, aged eighty seven. What was it? COVID violation. You know, didn't you? <laughs> did he go out? Someone. Did he go out without a mask? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe he yeah. uh, had a drink without a sausage roll. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah I forgot that rule. I forgot that rule. <laughs> Fucking mental, isn't it? Mad. Oh, no, go on. Um, what happened then? So he's age 83, so he's basically 87. lived his life. Yeah, and he's got away for it, got free. Yeah. He's in Paris, France. <sighs> so he's come out of the country. I think you're not protected. I don't know how long he was out of the country for, Kaz. Mm. I couldn't quite make out, but he's obviously on well, the run, so yeah. you're not going to know, are Either we? Either way, he's able to travel internationally, so... But he's been living under a false identity. Oh, I see. So he spent 26 years as a fugitive. Mm. He was arrested by French police as a result of a joint investigation with the IRMCT, Office of the Prosecutor Assisted by Interpol. Mm. I had to get that up because I was like, what the fuck is IR? <laughs> yeah. And law enforcement agencies in Rwanda, Belgium and the United States. Yeah. On the 27th of May, Kabar denied all charges but was denied, denied bail. He pleaded not guilty. And denied mm. he had anything to do with it. In March 2023. This year. Mm-hmm. Excellent. <laughs> Kabar's trial was suspended due to the SS claims by his attorneys that he suffers from dementia and he's not mentally competent to stand trial. The court announced that he had received an independent medical report regarding Kabar's mental fitness and would be holding further hearings over the co- over the coming weeks. Several psychiatrists subsequently testified that Kabar suffers from both fistica, dementia and Alzheimer's disease and is not mentally uh, competent. Mm-hmm. The leader of the Association of Genocide Widows in Rwanda, Valerie said every survivor was happy that he was arrested. There are now two people left, like, without things for the trial by the International Crime Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda who remain at large. A Protus Mapraya and a Augustum Bisma. Mm. So there's two left to pay for their actions of this genocide. Oh. But he got away scot free. Yeah, he has, isn't he? By the time they caught up with him, he's um he's 
to like I'm livid. Yeah. I'm fucking livid with it all. Oh, well, my one isn't going to make you feel any better. Oh, no, I'm livid. I was just, I'm, I'm gutted by it. Like, when I got to the end, I just thought, yeah. is that it? It's like, is um, that it? you know, that case we did about Joseph Mengele? Yeah. Prick, got away with it, yeah. scot free. Scot free. Fucking died on holiday. Yeah. Unbelievable. And the thing is, there was no cameras for us to see the atrocities that he did. Yeah. I see everything this fucker did. Mm. And it hurts. It hurts deep down. It's not nice. No, it's all well, like you say. It's like 80,000 a day were being yeah. sorted with machetes. Machetes. By their neighbours and their yeah. friends. Yeah. They were just fucking killing each other. Yeah. Mental, isn't it? And there's kids, guys. Kids on yeah. the streets with these big machetes bigger than them. You see this a lot, don't you? Bigger than them, guys. And you're like, what the fuck? Go and play football. Like, what mm. are you doing? I know, it's like they all had some kind of, I don't know, like you say, what do you call it, like a group madness kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. Like a group, what is the I terminology? Exactly but yeah, yeah, it is some kind of group yeah. madness where it's just contagious. Yeah, and it spreads. This well, homicidal influence. I think, yeah, I think once so many people say it's okay, he was a big influencer yeah. of the time to yeah. them. Um, yeah, they get that um, entitlement, like we say, Sometimes you stand back and say nothing, do nothing because of that. Yeah. Uh, with the Mengele. Like, mm. he's the boss, I can't say anything. But I don't think that's the case. I, no. like, when you watch these footage, guys, like, they're all... Um, they're hyped, They're up they? for it, yeah. yeah. They're hyped. They they want to hurt. And it's, yeah, mm. it's awful. It's just awful. Did you see some of the bits of what they've done to the women? Mm. Put them in the cage, didn't mm. they? It's fucking horrific yeah. how the women were treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they all subsequently all died. Died like, as well yeah, after they, they'd been yeah, subjected and the to kids that. Yeah. died. Like they weren't. If you was of the race, you just wasn't. You wasn't getting away with it, guys. Yeah, they must have killed every single tootsie. They did. Yeah, they must have done. Well, they did. No, there were our survivors. There were our survivors yeah. that talked. Yeah. And there were survivors. They all, I think, feel a bit of survival guilt. Mm. Um, but they are, there are survivors and I just was looking at them thinking how the fuck did you survive this how yeah. the fuck did you get away because I can't see no way out mm. if you're every checkpoint you're getting to there's more weapons more guards more people mm. hunting you down how the fuck did you get away perhaps they had false papers perhaps it's the only thing I can think oh that's true possibly I didn't think of that or, or they just had somewhere like really good to hide mm. So I think the Tutsi were the ruling classes yeah. before that genocide. Yeah. So maybe they even had underground money, or oh. like yeah, or they had like perhaps like a panic room yeah. or a basement or somewhere just to hide out. Because I mean, a hundred days straight, people are just getting slaughtered. Yeah. So nonstop. Maybe some of them even had their own private plane, <sighs> or had faithful servants that could help. Yeah, but. God knows, like you say, a very, very tiny handful survived. Yeah, and I was looking at it and I just thought, what would I do? Like the case we did in Norway and then the attacks and you're on that island. Yeah. It's the kind of like, you're a caged animal, you're, ca- like, you're caged. Mm. There's Where, no escape. What, there's no escape. And when we was doing the Norway, I thought, I wonder if I could have climbed a tree yeah. <laughs> and hide in a tree, not moved. Or, but mm. I just thought, I don't, like, I don't know how you'd get out of something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I know. It's a it's, it's an awful situation. Yeah, especially when you're you're in your homeland, mm. surrounded by just your people that you've grown up with mm-hmm. and gone to school with, and then one day they just fucking look at you like, "I'm going to fucking kill you." Yeah. See this machete in my hand? I'm going to mm-hmm. chop your head off with it. Yeah. You're like, what sort of madness? Yeah. Sounds like <laughs> I know this is going to sound flippant, but it must feel like you're in the middle of a fucking zombie mm. film. Yeah. You know where all of a sudden people just have a complete lobotomy yeah. and turn from a normal decent 
rational person to a homicidal yeah. maniac. But that's what happened during COVID, mm. didn't it? I don't know. <laughs> we we was good. We wink, nudge, nudge. We didn't kill anyone. No, no, not to that extent. But people would have believed you were safe going mm. to a pub for a sausage roll because yeah. the government body was saying that. Do you know what I mean? Oh, no one believed that. No, but what <laughs> can you see what I'm saying? People were easily led during yeah. that. I know, being told to stay indoors and being told to go and kill someone with a machete are very, very different. No, but you can see how it starts. That group mentality. Yeah. But still, I fucking don't understand it. No, I don't get it. It's it's hideous. Absolutely hideous. And there was, look, the the shameful thing about it is there was no international help. No. So the rest of the world knew this was going on. No one fucking stepped in, Lauren. I know. Literally, they were left to the slams to the slaughter. Mm Mm-hmm. Awful, yeah. Bad. So I don't really know what happened there. I mean, what? Ha- where was, where was the UN? Where was mm-hmm. the usual people that step in? Then? Of what states? America. Yeah. I don't think they're anything to do with the UN and NATO and stuff. No, no, to be but that, normally they they're quite like they like a bit of war, don't they? So mm. normally, only on their terms. I don't think they would. No, know, I don't want to get into it to be honest. But yeah, it is very strange. Mm. Very strange. Why no one stepped in to help prevent that? Yeah, awful, mm. awful. When you see what's happening in Ukraine, as soon as war was declared, people yeah, were rushing to help in, them. Yeah. yeah, but perhaps because it's civil war, it's different. I don't know. No, but yeah. So, is that the end of your case? Yeah, it's the end of Felicia and Kabar. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. Okay, guys. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So now it's over to me to bring you the case of Idi Amin, the Ugandan dictator and despot, a.k.a. the Butcher of Uganda. So... 2nd of February 1971, the year's main event saw Idi Amin take power as president of the East African nation of Uganda. As president or dictator, Amin was notorious for flagrant violations of human rights, economic decline and social disintegration. It has been reported that out of a population of 12, 12 million, around half a million were killed or disappeared under his rule. So that's small fry compared to what you've just told me. Mm. Um, his brutality and blatant disregard for international law plunged Uganda into chaos and poverty. So, yeah, I mean, half a million people, you know, in eight years is is pretty fucking bad. But compared to your 800,000 in 100 days, yeah. fucking hell. Um, so here we are. He had a few names. <laughs> so one of his nicknames was, he was also known as the Black Hitler. This was a phrase coined by the Liberal leader Jeremy Thorpe back in the 70s and it was a nickname that he was happy to use. He, Stop it. He loved it. He saw himself as a strong and tough leader like Hitler. <gasps> um, by the time his rule came to an end in 1979, he had lots of self-appointed titles. For instance, he called himself His Excellency, 
the president for life. I know you're laughing. It's fucking ridiculous. Uh, Field Marshal. This is the best one. <laughs> Lord of all the beasts of the earth and the fishes <gasps> in the sea. Stop. And conqueror of the British Empire in general and Uganda in, in particular. So I think it was like every year he was just giving himself another title, Jeez. making up new medals and new things and stuff. When do you get that self-important guess? Wait, at what point do you think, you know what, today... I don't know. Today, I'm going to be a countess. I'm going to be the lady of all the beasts. Yeah. And then tomorrow, I'll, I'll upgrade and become the governess. <laughs> the governess of the fishes. And then I'll go to Baroness. Who's in charge of the birds? That's yeah. what I want to know. Me. That, that's my appointed title. <laughs> Jeez, my God. Love yourself much. So he was also known as the cannibal, the butcher of Uganda. He was an uneducated and violent terror who ruled Uganda between 1971 and 1979. Now, Uganda is a just stunningly beautiful part of Africa. It's absolutely gorgeous. Mm. It used to be part of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. And while he was around Winston Churchill, he gushed over it. He's coined the phrase, it was the Pearl of Africa. He described it. It's beautiful. It's got loads of, it's landlocked. So it's surrounded by about five different African countries. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's got beautiful lakes, gorgeous rivers, uh, gorgeous waterfalls. There's lots of plantations. Um, I think they grow coffee there. It's a, it's got gold, I think it's got gold mines, I'm not sure, but it's got, no it hasn't, but it's got lots of beautiful natural resources and it's a stunningly gorgeous oh. place, And which is a shame because it's the backdrop to, you just get these fucking megalomaniacs, don't mm. you, that just ruin everything. Like you say, he's full of himself, you know, he needs to fucking yeah. calm down a little bit. I think he could fuck himself if he could. Oh, wouldn't he love that, yeah. Mm. Who's that, Jeffrey Dunn, wouldn't he? I was just going to say that, like look at himself <laughs> in the mirror. Yeah. yeah. Getting all jealous yeah. of the men because oh, when it burns, well, I know that's that is egotism to the empty yes. degree, isn't it? Yeah. So a little bit of a background about Adi Amin. Um, Adi Amin Dada, sometimes he called himself. So he was born around 1925. Um, he said like back then wasn't much really documentation about births and things like that, so he wasn't really sure when he was born. But around 1925 to 1928, um, to a woman from the Lugbara tribe. And um, his father was was from the Kakwa tribe. Um, His mother was his father's second wife. And when she was pregnant, his first wife spread rumours about the parentage of the pregnancy because she couldn't get pregnant herself. So out of jealousy and spite, she spread all these vicious rumours that, you know, um, Adi Amin's mother had been unfaithful. Milk and that the child, yeah, the child in her belly was not the father, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, exactly, yeah. And um, so this this continued, these rumours, they just wouldn't go away even after she'd given birth. So she gave birth to him one night, according to Idi Amin, during a hailstorm, which apparently in um, like in the cult, in African culture or Ugandan culture, it's quite a lucky thing to be born on a, in a hailstorm. Oh, wow. But he said it. He probably just said it. Oh, we, yeah, he loves himself. I mean, yeah, really, it. how do you know he was being born? Oh. Hey, so I was a fucking stupid idiot. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, so his father left his mother and she raised him as a single parent, which would have been pretty tough back then, you know, in the 19, late 1920s in mm. Uganda, pretty tough times for them. Um, he only attended school for about four years and then he left school and just took lots of jobs, what, him and his mother, just what they could to scrape by, get a living. He was like a, a goat herder. Um, what did he do as well? He had another little job somewhere as well. Anyway, 
Um, so yeah, in 1946, he joined, so he's probably around about 20, he joined the King's African Rifles, a British colonial army, and he joined as a cook, but he soon, right, you've got to remember, he's, this guy is massive, he's over six feet tall, he's six feet, four inches tall, and really built like, like really like built like a refrigerator kind of hench. Brick shit ass. That's the one. Thank you. I was waiting yeah, for it. Yeah, I was like, what's the word? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, this fella's hench. He looks like one of the massive American Judy footballers. Dench. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's the same sort of stature as OJ Simpson. He looks like one of, like a like a quarterback. Powerful, powerful guy. Um, so obviously they've noticed this in the army and thought he's wasted in the fucking kitchen getting soldiering. Anyway, so he absolutely thrives and he excels army life. He takes part in British actions against Somali rebels um, and the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya. Um, he showed a very brutal side, even at this early point in his life. And he would literally, he was a brilliant soldier because he would just follow the orders blindly. So he'd cut off people's ears, cut mm. off their fingers, all sorts of weird stuff like that. Um, but this Mau Mau uprising, this was an uprising in Kenya against Britain. And so he was fighting against fellow Africans on behalf of the British, like, uh, colonial army. And and he was brutal with it. He literally didn't take any prisoners. <laughs> he was, like, yeah. This Apparently this uprising went on until the 1960s when there was um, liberation wow. from the British Empire. Um, but, yeah, this uh, Idi Amin seemed to, like, relish it anyway. So uh, he was an athlete during this time in both the British and the Uganda army. Um, at six feet four inches tall, he was powerfully built. He was the Ugandan light heavyweight boxing champion from 1951 to 1960. Wow. So for nine years straight, he was the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Um, and he was also a really good swimmer, a, a quite a fast runner as well. Don't really look like it. He was a formidable rugby forward. Although one officer said of him, Idi Amin is a splendid type and a good rugby player, but virtually bone from the neck up and needs things explained in words of one letter. <laughs> um, like so, yeah, uh, this comes up quite a lot. He's a bit stupid, but I mean, pff, he fucking succeeded. I mean, he was the ruler of his country for years and years and years. And so perhaps you don't need brains to get far. We'll call him butter knife. Wrong. Not very sharp. Not, not very sharp. Not yeah. very sharp. <laughs> Um, so let me see. He, um, despite his increasing military clout, Izzy Amin soon got in trouble for his ruthless ways. In 1962, after a simple assignment to root out cattle stealers, it was reported that Amin and his men had committed brutal atrocities. Um, the British authorities in Nairobi exhumed the bodies and found that the victims had been tortured and beaten to death, and some of them had been buried alive. <laughs> That's pretty extreme for cattle. Oh. Um, what is it, cattle stealing? I know cattle stealing is like, taken very seriously, but you don't deserve to be buried alive from looking at a cow, do you? No. These are all just um, like country folk. They're, they're not like hardened gangsters yeah. or anything, they're, but he comes down on them like a ton Jesus. of bricks. That's brutal. Um, since Idi Amin was one of only two high-ranking African officers at that time, mm-hmm. and Uganda was nearing its 9th of October 1962 day of independence from Britain, um, British officials decided not to prosecute Idi Amin for this brutality, for the murder of all of these um, cattle-stealing people. Instead, 
um, Prime Minister Abote promoted him and sent him to the UK for further military training. <laughs> the chance to stop him had been missed. So at that point, really, they should have they should have stopped him. They should have yeah. took all of his powers off of him, chucked him in prison, and that would have been the end of Idi Amin. But they didn't. It was timing, really. The British knew they were about to pass Uganda back to Ugandan rule, and they wanted people probably like Idi Amin mm. who have come through the ranks in the British Army and they know the ropes. Yeah. People they can trust. They know that they can trust him. They've worked with him. Um, yeah. So, big, big, big mistake. So, 1962, Uganda gains independence from Britain and Idi Amin joined the National Defence Force and he rose swiftly through the ranks so that by 1965, he was the commander of the army under the new president, Milton Obote. Um, Milton Obote was the second president of Uganda <laughs> by 1965, so literally in the space of three years. He had kicked out. There was a man, he was a king, because um, it's quite tribal, Uganda. Mm-hmm. And um, Obote, he got all the... Well, actually, Obote got Idi Amin to get all his forces, because he's in command of all of the armed yeah. forces. And he went and... Um, raided the king's palace and all that sort of thing and the king had to escape to exile wow and this abote creature has stepped in and taken <laughs> taken over with Idi Amin as his right hand man like as his basically Jeez. his hired thug yeah yeah just getting shit done yeah you find it all the time don't you wherever you go in history there's there's the man there's the brains and he's got his thug with him yeah. who just yeah. bangs heads together and makes shit happen yeah um, so meanwhile, Abote further promoted him into major in 1963 and to colonel in 1964. In 1966, the Ugandan parliament charged Idi Amin with misappropriating $350,000 worth of gold and ivory from the guerrillas in the Congo he was supposed to supply with arms. So he's doing cross-border trading okay. for gold and ivory. He's trying to line his own pockets by doing it. He's obviously not going through the correct channels mm-hmm. And um, he's starting to get in trouble with the authorities. In response, Amin's forces arrested the five ministers who raised the issue and Abote suspended the constitution, appointing himself president. Two days later, Amin was put in charge of Uganda's entire military and police force. And yes, so this is the bit about the coup. Two months later, Abote sent tanks to attack the palace of King Matuse II, the king of the Baganda tribe with whom he shared power. The king fed the country, leaving Abote, leaving Abote in charge of the government and Amin in charge of the government's muscle. Amin ultimately seized control with a military coup on January the 25th, 1971, while Abote was flying back from a conference in Singapore. Um, in an ironic twist of fate, Abote was forced into exile by the same man he empowered. He wouldn't return until after Idi Amin's terrifying reign. So here we are, 1971, Idi Amin has taken over by force Uganda. So now he's the third president of Uganda. And because um, by now these two, they fell out, even though they'd been friends and Abote had promoted him and given him charge of all the armed forces and stuff. They just, they did, they fell out. And um, like I say, he put a arrest warrant out for Idi Amin. And funnily enough, while Abote, he was actually visiting Singapore for a Commonwealth meeting, like a meeting of the Commonwealth nations. Ah. And, yeah, so <laughs> as he's um, flying back, he finds out that 
um, Idi Amin has taken over the capital city, has taken over all the government buildings. So, so he doesn't land in Uganda. He just veers off and lands in one of the other places so that um, and lives in ac- exile. Mm. He does eventually come back. He does oh, come back okay. and become president after Idi Amin. So he does survive it. Uh, yeah, so Ugandans, they were generally enthusiastic. There was like cheering in the streets and they were all really happy that he was taking over because he had quite a down-to-earth... If you watch footage of him in that, he seems like quite a down-to-earth, jolly mm. sort of bloke. People described him as a buffoon because he was like that. He had that buffoon kind of quality about yeah. him. But he could really, in a split second, he could change from being jokey and like he'd say, oh, call me Big Daddy to... Doing really nasty, fucked up shit. Yeah. Really nasty, fucked up shit. And he would do it himself. It, not like he'd give an order. He very hands-on with his... I'll tell you what he does in oh a minute. God. <laughs> we'll get to the juicy part, but it's fucking oh. horrible. So, yes. So, to them, the new president wasn't merely a military leader, but a charismatic man of the people. And people were dancing in the streets. But little did they know, this was the beginning of an eight-year reign of terror and poverty for the Ugandan people. He wasted no opportunity to shake hands, pose for pictures and dance the traditional dances with commoners. And his informal personality made it seem like he really cared about the country. Um, while he was he was a practising Muslim as well. So he, um, like I think when you're Muslim you're allowed to take multiple wives. So even the fact that he had multiple wives, it kind of endeared him to people because he'd have a wife from this tribe and a wife from that tribe. So it kind right. of like gelled, gelled everybody. Yeah, exactly. So they even liked him for the fact that he had different wives from different tribes and things like that. Um, and it, but it, So he had, I'm not sure whether it's six or seven wives. No one's 100% sure. And about 30 mistresses. Fucking hell. <laughs> he had something like 40 kids as well. Probably more. Mm. <laughs> um, but the biggest boost to his popularity came when he allowed King Matusa's body to return to Uganda for burial in his homeland. And he abolished Obote's secret police and granted amnesty to political prisoners. So it all starts out like smelling of roses, Lauren. You yeah. know, he's the good guy. He's like, yeah, look, the king can come back, be buried in his homeland, release the political prisoners, nice international relations throughout the world, you know, really strong ties with Britain mm-hmm. and America and um, Israel. Yes, Israel, because <laughs> it does change in a minute. <laughs> So, unfortunately, Idi Amin was not the benevolent benevolent ruler he appeared to be. He began by telling the Ugandan people the army would only be ruling until the democratic system was established and then there would be a f- be free and fair elections. So, he's like, yep, yeah, I'm just going to take over just for a minute. And then over to you. We'll have, a, we'll have an election, you vote, and then we will honour your vote because I'm all about democracy. Dictators don't really understand democracy. No. I don't think. I don't believe so. This man doesn't. No. Ain't he president for life? <laughs> he is president yeah. for life. Thank yeah. you for remembering. Yeah, yeah, one of his many titles, Lauren. Um, so, yeah, this all transpired to be, obviously, a complete pile of lies. <laughs> um, so, he freed the political prisoners and it seemed to be the beginning of a new and free Uganda. Idi Amin renamed the Presidential Lodge in Kampala... Kampala is the capital of Uganda, from government house to the command post, which I think sounds a little dodgy. bit sinister. Yeah, it's dodgy. It's, it's sounding military already, yeah. and living under a military state is never very jolly, is it? Let's face it. Um, he disbanded the General Service Unit, which was um, it abbreviated to the GSU, which is an intelligence agency created by the previous government, which I think 
was people was frightened of it maybe like kgb kind mm-hmm. of thing they, they, they were happy that he disbanded it but <laughs> he replaced it with the state research bureau the srb so the srb headquarters at the kampala suburb of nakasero became the scene of torture and capital punishment over the next few years overcrowding <clears throat> yes yeah, so this was the bit i was listening to just before you came around so there's a little um youtube video about um, I think they said there was a journalist spent four days in this prison and he reported back and he, he said like the overcrowding is so bad that the prisoners have to take turns to sleep because there isn't space Jesus for everyone to lay Christ. down at the same time. If somebody dies in the jail, it can take up to a week before someone takes the corpse away. Oh, no. So you can imagine, and it's hot. It's fucking hot in Uganda. <laughs> so it's rotting corpse. Oh. And... um. So there's there's a way a means of execution in this prison during Idi Amin's reign. So they called it tapping, which sounds jolly. It really isn't. <laughs> so what they do, they make the prisoners line up, like one behind the other, behind the mm. other in a, in a line in a queue, and they'd give what give a prisoner a hammer, and he would be instructed at gunpoint to hammer to death the bloke in front of him. <gasps> yep. And then hand the hammer to the man behind him, and then he would hammer him to death, and then hand the hammer to the man behind him, and he would hammer him to death, until eventually the whole line has been hammered to death, until the last man at the end of the queue who just gets shot. What the fuck? I couldn't. I had to listen to that bit twice. I was I was just popping around the kitchen. And I had it playing while I was just waiting for you to come, and I and I heard it, and I was like. Fucking hell, people moan about our politicians. What the fuck? <laughs> I, I had to rewind it. And I was like, did I hear that right? I've never heard of anything so sick and twisted in my life. Can you I imagine? Can't, I can't. It's awful, isn't it? Um, so when he came to power, he did have, he had strong alliances with Israel, Great Britain. Mm-hmm. But they stopped providing him with weapons and stuff like that. So he broke all ties with them and he began trading with anyone who tried with him, including the Soviets, Saudis, East Germany. And... Palestine, so with it, he became completely anti-Semitic and racist against Jews. Mm-hmm. Now, he's a Muslim, and there's the whole Palestine-Israel mm-hmm. thing going on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this is how he starts to become. So this is only a year into his reign, already starting to look at persecuting certain groups and things like that. In 1972, he expelled all of the country's Indian population who had moved to Uganda as part of the British Empire. So a generation before... Thousands and thousands of um, people from India had left India as part of the um, British Empire. They were mm-hmm. free to move around whenever they wanted, and they were very industrious, very like really good at business, really good at like cloth manufacturer, mm-hmm. running businesses, shops. So, you know, like like over here in the seventies. This is why, I didn't realise, this is why in the 70s so many corner shops sprung up. Because in 1972, he gave them all, everybody who was Indian, who was working in Kampala, but also the rest of Uganda, yeah. 90 days to up and leave. Stop. And they couldn't sell their business, they just had to leave it. They couldn't take much with them. So there was a lady I was watching earlier, she owned a jewellery business in Kampala, and um, she said they were allowed to take two gold bangles each, and that was it. So all of her stock was just left in Uganda when she uh, came to the UK and but she said what she did they were allowed to take these two gold bangles so her husband she said he worked day and night for nine for those 90 days everyone was bringing all their precious everything they could mm-hmm. and he was melting it down and, and making it into two bangles so they could take it out of wow. the country but she said a lot of the Indian ladies they got whatever they could get all of their rings and mm. earrings and whatnot 
and put it in their hair and then did a really tight bun. Oh, wow. <laughs> and smuggled it out in their hair. It's mental, isn't it? Wow. But there's so many like cool little things like that on YouTube yeah. about all this. It's really That's interesting. I like, like that, yeah. Proper first-hand accounts of wow. what it was like. Um, and there was there's another one where the journalist has actually gone to Kampala during the point where they're being where the purge is happening, and the street is lined with like hundreds, probably thousands and thousands of um, Indian families, mm. all just waiting to get their papers done and just get yeah. sorted out so they can leave. And they're all just they're all frightened. They're like every night we say here we we hit people disappear and they don't come back and oh, no. um, yeah they've all got. It's it's brilliant that it's all been documented. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. really really interesting yeah. if you like your history, which I do. I'm all over it, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So he um, he issued them a warning to leave. This was on the fourth of August, nineteen seventy-two. Ninety days to get out, and he's been interviewed by this journalist. And the the journalist says to him, "So what happens if they don't leave within ninety days?" And he goes, "Ha ha ha ha," and. Mm. And he's just laughing. And the journey says, no, what's going to happen if people don't leave after 90 days? He said, well, they'll be sitting on a fire. Which yeah. I thought, oh, that's a bit of a, a frightening thing to yeah. say, isn't it? Basically, they're going to be scorched. <laughs> just get out now while you've yeah. got the chance kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think I don't think he was mucking around. He wanted them fucking all gone. At first, it was only people that still had kept their British passports. Because uh, some of the Indians, when they came over, they wanted to um, get a... Ugandan passport they mm-hmm. could if they wanted to but most of them wanted to hang on to their British passport probably so they could still move around yeah. and stuff like that so at first we wanted all the Indians that still had their British passports gone and then he expanded it to every single Indian person he was going I want Uganda only for Ugandans he said I want to walk down this street in Kampala and I just want to see black faces I don't want to see any more Indians anymore get them all out so they all went Right, these are all really hard working very successful business people and most important of all Fucking pay tax. Yeah. They all go. And they get replaced by his friends, his buddies. Some people say whoever could run the quickest to get to whatever business. So these are people that have never run a business in their life, know absolutely jack yeah. shit about this business that they've just walked into. And they, mind you, they all failed because they didn't know how to run the business. It's not like they had a handover from the shopkeeper or from the businessman or, you know, I think they'd shortages of butter like really basic things because they just no one was there to run it and knew what the fuck Mad, they were it? doing it's really stupid but you know bone bone above the neck yeah this is yeah. the actions of a man who's got bone above the neck yeah so it's about fifty thousand asians they were part british passport holders and then yeah so there was about ten thousand who who like the, the extra ones mm-hmm. so yeah, about 30,000 of these people immigrated to the UK and the rest of them went to other Commonwealth countries like Australia, South Africa, Canada, all over the world really. Um, yeah, so it just says he, he handed over the businesses to his supporters without experienced owners and proprietors, businesses were mismanaged and many industries collapsed. Industries, fucking hell, collapsed. I know, I was just going Yeah, that. not just a business, an industry. Um from lack, lack of operational expertise and maintenance. This proved disastrous for the already declining Ugandan economy. At the time, Asians accounted for 90% of the country's tax revenue. Oh, he's a fucking idiot. What an idiot. Where's, where the fuck do you think all that tax revenue is going to come from if they all just leave? Seriously. The, the economy all but collapsed. 
Um, by early 1972, some 5,000 Akoli and Lango soldiers and at least twice as many civilians had disappeared. Now, these were the one; these were the soldiers and the civilians who were loyal to his predecessor, Boto. Mm-hmm. So he basically he just wants to root out anyone who might turn, who might yeah might yeah. not be loyal to him. This is a year in, so already he's starting to get paranoid. I mean, the first year seems all right. Second year, paranoia, the purging. Yeah, it's all just starting to go fucking wrong straight away. Really. He's lost ties with his strongest allies. He's having to team up with people he's never teamed up with before. Um, the victims soon came to include other mem- include members of other ethnic groups, religious leaders, journalists, artists, senior bureaucrats, judges, lawyers, students and intellectuals, criminal suspects and foreign nationals. In this atmosphere of violence, many other people were killed for criminal motives or simply at will. So he told his soldiers, do what you want as long as it keeps me in power. And no questions yeah. asked. Do yeah. do what you want. Take what you want. As long as it keeps me in power, I mm-hmm. don't care. Bodies were often dumped in the river Nile, or people were simply just fed to the crocodiles, mm. whether they were dead or not. His methods of murder became increasingly sadistic. Rumors spread that he kept human heads in his refrigerator. <laughs> um, he yes. reportedly ordered four thousand disabled people to be thrown into the Nile to be torn <gasps> apart by crocodiles. Um, he confessed to cannibalism on several occasions because there was rumours that he was a cannibal and he loved it. He he thought it made people more scared of him. So he literally like stoked that up. He he actually said, I have eaten human meat. This was in 1976. He said, it's very salty, even more salty than leopard meat. My God. Yeah, mad. What's it? Dharma say about that? Do <laughs> I don't know. What did he say? I don't know. <laughs> By this point, Amin was using the majority of national funds for the armed forces and for his own personal expenses. Uh, this is a classic for 20th century military <laughs> dictatorships, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, some people attributed Amin's increasing cruelty to the dizzying effects of absolute power. So it could be the power went to his head. Others believed his reign coincided with late stage syphilis. So in his early military days, he was charged with failing to treat an STD. And in the mid-1970s, an Israeli doctor who had served in Uganda told a Tel Aviv newspaper that it's no secret that Idi Amin is suffering from the advanced stages of syphilis, which has caused brain damage. Ah. So it could be one or yeah. the other, I don't know. Let's go with syphilis. Yeah, maybe, or maybe he just was full of himself still. Um, July 1976, there was an Air France flight from Tel Aviv in um, Tel Aviv to Paris, which was hijacked by the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organisation. And because he's all buddies with them, he tells them you can come and land here at NTB Airfield, here in Uganda, safe passage, come Mm -hmm. and land here. Um, He was a strong critic of Israel, and he allowed the terrorists to land at NTB Airport in Uganda and provided them with troops and supplies as they held 246 passengers and 12 crew members hostage. Um... Instead of giving up Israel, just they packed up like elite commandos to rescue the hostages in a surprise attack uh, during the night of July 3rd. So in what turned out to be one of the most daring and successful rescue missions in history, 101 of 105 remaining hostages were liberated. So out of the people on the airplane, he let anybody who was um, non-Jewish off the plane. He just wanted to keep the Jewish people on the plane. Um, And... The crew and the captain, they all stayed on as well. They could have come off, but they were in solidarity. They went, no, we're not leaving. We're, we're going to stay here and look after oh. passengers. So they stayed on as well. But yeah, within a day, they'd all been rescued by um, 
the Israelis, they came over and they sorted it out. So only one Israeli soldier lost his life during the operation, while all seven hijackers and 20 Ugandan soldiers were killed. So, um, yeah, he let 156 non-Jews go. Um, yeah, and then this has obviously made him look really foolish. Yeah, he's all so within a, no like brains. literally, the whole thing has been sorted out with one casualty to the Israelis, all the other casualties to him and his mm-hmm. side. Anyway, he took it out on, on a survivor, this old lady. Oh, no. So after an embarrassing turn of events, Idi Amin ordered the execution of one of the hostages, a 74-year-old British Israeli woman who'd fallen ill during the hostage crisis and was being treated in a Ugandan hospital. Um, British documents released in 2017 revealed that the woman, who was called Dora Block, was dragged from her hospital bed screaming and shot to death and dumped in the tru- trunk of a government car. The body, her body was discovered about 19 miles away, but the body was too burnt to identify. Um, I think he also shot all of the people that were involved in that as well. That obviously 20 of his soldiers were killed, but I think he killed the rest of them as well because he was just really completely yeah. made it look like a fool on the world yeah. stage. Embarrassed, so he's yeah. taken his rage out. Yeah. Yes, ridiculous, yeah. isn't it? Uh, over time, so this is coming to the end of his reign, thank Christ. Over time, the number of Amin's intimate allies dwindled and formerly loyal troops began to mutiny. When some of them fled across the border into Tanzania, Idi Amin accused Tanzanian President Jules Nairi of instigating the unrest and retaliated by annexing the Kajira salient, a strip of territory north of the Kajira River, in November 78. Two weeks later, Nairia, President Nairia of um, Tanzania, mobilised a counter-offensive to recapture the land and drove the Ugandan army out with the help of some Ugandan exiles. <laughs> so there's Ugandans Shame. pushing yeah. the other Ugandans out. Um, obviously the Ugandans who are just, the blinkers have come off, they're completely mm-hmm. disillusioned with their leader by now. Uh, the battle raged into Uganda and on April the 11th, 1979, Idi Amin was forced to flee when Kampala was captured. Um yeah, so that's it. He went into exile. And um, he... <laughs> so he went to... Where did he... I think, first of all, he moved to... Yeah, he originally sought refuge in Libya. But he didn't stay there very long. And he moved to Saudi Arabia. He was welcomed there with open arms by the Saudi Arabian royal family. Wow. Um, he lived very comfortably until his death. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, he died. <laughs> right, he... In his later years, he became a fruitarian. <laughs> so he lived on oranges and he became really obese and he died of multiple organ failure in in 2003. And he was um, surrounded by his family, like all his kids and a couple of his wives. <laughs> yeah. Wives for life. Mad, isn't it? 16th of um, August, 2003. <laughs> he lived off oranges and died obese. <laughs> I can't, I can't. Mental, isn't it? How'd you get up? Because of all the sugar in the throat. They, yeah, they must be very sweet oranges. They're probably not like the shitty ones we get over here, yeah. which will make you go, they're almost as sour as lemons, aren't they? Yeah. Um, a little bit about his personal life. This will make you laugh. Just a little bit of levity before we yeah, sign let's off. let's do it, let's do it. So he married six or seven women and he had around 60 kids. Mm-hmm. So in um, 1966, he married two ladies, uh, Malyamu and Kay. And in 67, he married Nora. Then he married somebody called Nalongo Medina in 1972. So, on the 26th of March, 1974, he announced on Radio Uganda that he had divorced Malaymo, Nora and Kay. 
So oh. he's like gone on the way down, gone, yeah, they, I've divorced all three of them. So he still had one left. He hung on to Nalongo. I think Nalongo was his wife who was with him right till the end. Oh. She was with him when he died. So he did keep hold, keep on with her. Yeah. But the two, the three ladies that he said about on the radio, um, one of them, Kay, she was the one who was mutilated. Now, he used to do some really fucked up shit. He mutilated her. They, yeah, there's a film called Last King of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Like James McAvoy plays this young doctor who becomes the personal physician of Idi Amin. And he has, in the in the film, he has an affair with Kay. Idi Amin obviously finds out. And, he, like, um, the young doctor, he manages to flee back to the UK and he escapes with his life just. He gets tortured, but he, get, he gets out. Kay gets murdered, but they uh, cut her arms and legs off. Oh, my God. And then stitch them back on in the wrong place. Obviously, she died. So, poor Kay, she is dismembered, found in little bits and pieces. Oh, no. Um, Nora, his other wife, she fled to Zaire, but no one knows what happened to her. So hopefully she lived happily ever yeah, after. let's hope so. I do hope so. And I think Maliomo, she tried to flee as well, but she was captured on the border. She was arrested for taking a bolt of fabric. No. And then there's nothing else written about what happened to her. I hope she didn't go in that horrible prison, but I don't know. Oh, no. Um, anyway, the love of his life. There was a, a nine, year old dancer called Sarah Kaya. Kayo Laba. Mm-hmm. So she was 19 when he met her. She was dancing in a club, part of a band. And, like, love at first sight, he wanted her. Didn't care about the fact she was living with her boyfriend at the time, um, who mysteriously vanished and was never heard of. Oh, ever for fuck's sake. So let's presume he's in mm. the belly of one of them crocodiles. Yeah. Anyway, they had a £2 million wedding, right, in 1975. £2 wow. million pound wedding. Can you imagine how lavish that was? Yeah. And they went on, they were very happy together. They used to go um, like banger racing and stuff together. They went on to have four children. Um, once he was in exile, she did eventually leave him. Don't know how she managed to do it, but she managed to leave him. Mm. And she moved over here to London and she opened up hairdressers in Tottenham. Oh, wow. But um, Yeah. Wow. So Sarah managed to outlive him as well. Good. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I just thought... Raise the tone yeah, a bit by talking about a few of the women in his life. Yeah. But yeah, if you Google Idi Amin's wives, there's all wedding pictures and stuff on there. Oh, yeah, like it's really it's so interesting. Wow, it is good because it can. This story I found a little bit military heavy yeah. sometimes, yeah. and I don't I find that a little bit boring and mm. stuff. So when you find out a bit more about the personal life, it's a bit yeah. more interesting. Yeah. I think so. Get a bit of a nugget. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, so yeah, that was the case of Idi Amin and the uh, the butcher of Uganda. Wow. So um, thank you for listening. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, time for us to sign off. Bye, Felicia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, I'd just like to say, obviously, I fully appreciate. I really appreciate from the bottom of my heart every download, every listen. Um, we know there's a ton of true crime podcasts out there, so me and Lauren are always fucking made up, aren't we? Why else? We're like, <laughs> oh my god, they're listening to us. So thank yeah, you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoy our little twist on the true crime genre. And if you do like it, please tell your friends. Yeah. You know, there's nothing like a personal recommendation. No, that's it. And pop over to Patreon while you're at it. Come see us over there. Yeah, and come and come and say hi to us over on our social media as well just put blue murder club into anywhere and we'll pop up because we're on everything aren't we so yeah and have a lovely week and um we hope to see you next time bye take care